Our scripture today is found in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here to worship with you this morning. Let's take a moment and just pray before we uh, get dive into God's word here, and uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Uh, we have a tremendous need for you to depend on you, to depend on you to open our eyes and to renew our hearts and to give us courage to be in your presence through the work that you've done in Jesus. And so we come to you now, and we ask for you to do that. Be with us, strengthen us, give us insight and, and wisdom and clarity when it comes to your grace and your peace on our behalf. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We've come to... Uh, let me say first that Liberty Fairmount is part of... Um, comes out of the historic Christian church. We're connected to Jesus and his apostles and uh, all of the redemptive story that came before them. We're also uh, connected to St. Augustine and the, the wonderful thought that he did theologically around, well, what does the gospel mean to us then? theologically and practically, day to day. And we're connected specifically to the time of the Reformation where there were, there were uh, grave wrongs going on within the church and there were a group of Christians who stood out and said, we can't do this. This is not Christ-like. Now, one of the things that have flown out of the Reformation is this idea of repentance. Ooh, there's a word. Have you heard that word? Does that word make you feel uncomfortable? It's an old word. I'm not sure that we're as familiar with it as people once were. But 
one of the things Martin Luther said coming out of the time of the Reformation was that for the Christian, for somebody who gets the gospel, all of life is repentance. So there's a tremendous importance associated with repentance. And for us to understand it, we're going to look at Psalm 51, but there's no way that we can look at Psalm 51 without reading about the one who wrote it and the circumstances that, that uh, provoked him to write it. So let's look, at, let's look at the one who wrote it. I'm going to read a story briefly as a way of introducing the psalm so that then we can understand what are the characteristics of real repentance. What does it look like? If all of life is supposed to be around this, what does real repentance look like? This is from 2 Samuel 11 and 12 where we find, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Sent, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king arises, anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went 
and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of the morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. There's much around that story. And one of the things that I would point out before we begin is that there's a real temptation. There's a real temptation for Christians to go to the Bible and look at the characters of the Bible. King David slaying the giant when he was but a shepherd boy with a slingshot and say, hey, I want to be courageous like David too. But there's such an interconnectedness to the story of Scripture and such a focus point in the gospel and the fact that we need God to deliver us that you have to begin to see the interconnectedness. And so I read this story because if at the center of our actions as Christians, if all of life is repentance, then we should learn from a person who has sinned grievously and yet was able to write a psalm that was to be used in worship for the people of God that's used in our worship today. Repentance from your sin is that important. So we're going to get into it and we're going to look at it from Psalm 51. And we're going to see in Psalm 51 that real repentance has several important important characteristics that David leaves for us. 
and we're going to break them up into a couple of different parts, okay? So there are those characteristics of repentance that deal with your relationship to sin itself. And we're going to see that we need to see one of the characteristics of real repentance is that we need to see our sin. We need to have sight of our sin. And our attitude towards sin needs to change, and we need to have hatred for it. But also there are characteristics that deal with our relationship with God. We've actually got to be sorry for the sin itself. We've got to be able to confess our sin. We've got to be able to turn from it and finally to turn to God himself. So let's look at uh, these characteristics together as we study repentance, as we study what it means to turn from the things that we hold dear as though they're the things that make us who we are and turn to God in sorrow for the things that would stand in the way between us. Okay, first of all, sight of sin, right? What does verse 3 say? Verse 3 says, And my sin is ever before me. Now, one of the aspects you need to know about repentance is you cannot really repent until the Holy Spirit gives you some illumination. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes in and makes sin real to you. It makes it real to you. It makes it apparent. You can see it. You understand that it's there in a way that you didn't before. Look, um, God sent Nathan to David. Until he did, David didn't see his sin. He was caught up in this pattern and it kept going down. It kept spiraling down. It got worse and worse and worse. And he wasn't able to see it. And he used all kinds of contrivances. Oh, go, t- go tell the commander of the army that, you know, this is the way that it happens in war. Some people fall, some people don't. And he wasn't looking at his sin. But he needs to see it in order to repent. And so David is able to say, my sin is always before me, as he writes this psalm after this travesty of justice that he carries on within his people and with God's household. Um, you need to be able to see it. Sin is blinding. It's like a lens that we look through that when we look through it, it colors everything that we see so that we don't realize, we no longer realize that we're looking through that lens and it's hard to see and we need one another to see it. David needed Nathan. We need one another. I'll give you an example uh, from my own life. Some of you, I know some of you better than others and the some of you that I know better than others have said to me on occasion, you know, sometimes I wish you would be more yourself when you preach. You know, the you that I get to see behind the scenes. Sometimes I wish that would come out. And I, I notice that there's just a little bit of self-protection there. A little bit of not being yourself when you could be. And that's right. I need, sometimes I can't see that, and I need you to, to, to help me to see it. But you have to realize how much this is connected to life and how much this is connected to the way that I worship wrongly and the way that I would invest in other things. I've told some of you this story, I think even in a sermon once, that when I was young, when I was uh, six years old, I had a best friend who lived down the street. Her name was Beth. Beth was awesome. We used to play together. Um, and I had a little turntable. And it played 45 records from my, it was from my mom. And so it played things like Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys. Some of you have no idea who that is. That's okay. Uh, and it had little speakers in the turntable. So it would come out. It was the almost awesome thing. This was a record. I don't know. Some of you don't know what a record is. But you put a needle down on the record and the sound comes through the speakers. It's great. You know, kind of like a CD, a CD, but analog parts. What's a CD? Right. 
I keep regressing here. Okay. Um, and we used to listen to that, and we used to play, and we used to take walks together. We'd walk home from school. And, and I had a, a strange upbringing, and, and my stepdad was a little strange. And, and some days he would say random, he would just proclaim random sort of uh, edicts against me. You may no longer walk this way home from school today. You have to walk this way. And it was okay. And this was a day where I couldn't walk home with my friend, and, and I had to walk this other way that my stepdad had said. Well, that night on the news, she showed up missing. And I didn't know what had happened to her. And two and a half years later, they had found her body. And she was raped, and she was stabbed 19 times. And I had no way to process that. I had no way to process that. And I developed a belief in the world that the world is only safe if I protect myself. The world is only safe if I protect myself. So fast forward living in New York, West 92nd Street, uh, living in a bottom apartment that we got. It was a great deal in rent. There were some other uh, friends from our community, our church community, who lived in the building too. But right next to us, we took the apartment because it was so, it was less, in, less expensive than the other apartments. And one of the reasons why it was less expensive is there was a crack addict right next door. And she um, was using drugs, and her boyfriend eventually left her, and she began prostituting herself uh, to her, her pimps, and they would come by, and my kids are growing up in this apartment, my wife, and they're beginning to look at my wife in, in um, difficult ways, and my children in difficult ways, and I'm feeling very unsafe. So there's background there. And... One time we're holding a small group in our apartment and we're talking about the Bible and we're talking about the gospel and we're getting to know some new friends and it's wonderful. And my wife gets a call on her cell phone and the call uh, was a number that she didn't recognize. She said, you know what, I'll get this later. Let's finish up the study. So we finished up the study. People left. And it's just the kids and Anne-Marie and I left. And she said, you know what, I think I recognize this number. Let me call back and see what's going on. And she called back. And some guy began to speak in, in really um, uh, dirty ways to her, in ways that were really inappropriate. And she was shocked, and she said, well, let me put my husband on the phone. So I'm, I'm on the phone, and uh, I'm, I said, who is this? And he started cussing me out. Uh, and she had told me what had happened, and there was something happening inside at that moment. Um, there was something happening about self-protection at that moment, and I started to, to feel undone by it. And I said, look, you know, I was still maintaining composure. I said, I have your number. I can just turn it into the police. You've got to stop calling this number. Don't abuse us this way. Still swore at me. I hung up the phone, and I'm pacing, and I'm pacing. And my wife said, you know what, Scott? You need to go walk the dogs because you're scarier right now than the phone call is. And I said, okay. So I took the dogs out for a walk, and we walked in the park, and I'm throwing the ball, and I'm weeping, and I'm weeping. And, I, and I'm saying in my prayer, God, I can't protect them. I can't protect them from all of this. I don't know how. And in prayer, in a very Presbyterian sort of way, the Lord affirmed in my heart the truth that death may take your family. Death may take your wife and your children but they can never be snatched out of my hand and I protect them and I will protect them. Can you do that? Or will you trust in me to do that? And it opened up a trust in the Lord's provision 
for them eternally in a way that I couldn't provide for them. And it began to break open that sin that I hadn't seen there. Now that sin still shows up. Sometimes you'll see self-protection from me as I talk. Sometimes, and I don't know it's there, and I need you to give me feedback. Or sometimes my wife will say, hey, you're doing really well at being vulnerable. You're not being self-protective. And other times, like just a couple weeks ago, she says, dude, what's going on? You're like the Batmobile. It's all like, you're all self-protected right now. You know, don't do that. The point is that you need to see it. One of the aspects of repentance that's so important is that you need to see it. And you can't do it yourself because you're blinded to it, just as David was. You can't repent without the Holy Spirit making it real to you, and he uses us to do that. You need to see your sin, and you need to see it in the various areas of your life, your work, your friendships, your church life, your hobbies, in the things you enjoy, in the things you're afraid of, in the things and in the people that you long for. You need to see it. Verse 3, my sin is always before me. You must see it. It's a characteristic of real repentance. Ask God to illumine your sin for you. Help him to, ask him to shine a light on your sin for you and make it real to you. You need to see it if you're going to turn to him effectively. So not only must you see your sin, but You also must see changes that take place in your attitude toward yourself and toward your sin. Toward yourself, surely I was sinful at birth, verse 5, right? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then uh, verse 4, what is evil in your sight, right? Against you, you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight. So the attitude toward yourself and toward your sin have changed. In real repentance, there's a change of your whole attitude toward yourself. You're going to see yourself as the sinner. Not someone who occasionally does wrong things and those are sins, but you're going to see yourself as the sinner. We're going to look at this in a couple weeks when we look at a a particular uh, passage from Luke 18 where there's a tax collector and he's standing far off from God's temple. And he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this is the man who went justified down to his house. If there's been real sorrow for the sin and not just the consequences, you will come to hate the sin itself as well. So not only will your attitude to yourself change, you will be the sinner, but your, your attitude towards sin itself will become one of hatred. You'll begin to hate it. You'll begin to see it for what it is. Instead of, this is a guy's illustration, but ladies bear with me. Instead of an attractive woman in a red dress made up, you'll begin to see it for what it is, your sin. You'll begin to see it as a liquefying corpse slapping some lipstick on and saying, come be romantic with me. Do you want to do that? Your sin becomes ugly to you, repugnant to you, because it stands in the way of who you are and who you're meant to be in the gospel and who God is and your relationship with him. Real repentance involves an attitude change toward yourself and toward your sin. Uh, David was sorry for the consequences of Bathsheba becoming pregnant, right? The reason I read the story for you is it's impossible to understand repentance without looking back at the one who wrote it and the circumstances around him writing it. And when Bathsheba became pregnant, he tried to cover it up. 
And he tried to get Uriah to sleep with her so that it would look like it's from them and not from him. And when that didn't work, he sent Uriah to the front lines to be murdered. And he was sorry for the consequences for his sin. But when he's sorry for the sin itself, you say, I'm a sinner. David began to see himself as the one who deserved it. When Nathan approached him and he began to repent, he said, Nathan said, you are the man. And David said, yes. It's in God's sight that I've sinned. I am the man. Now, how can, we, how can we understand this in our own life? We looked at this when we covered relationships and mess worth making. We were looking at some of the passages that deal with community building practices. And one of the things that this shows up really practically in is just apologies, right? Apologies are a great way to see if you're sorry for the sin itself or just sorry for the consequences of the sin itself. So listen, have you ever found yourself in this situation where you have said to somebody or somebody said to you, after you've done something wrong, I'm sorry that you're angry. Does that seem common to you? Have you used that? I'm sorry that you're angry. You're sorry for the consequences of the sin, but you're not sorry for the sin itself. You see? The different way to say that is this. I'm sorry that I did this to make you angry. This was wrong. This is, was wrong in this way. Here's how it was wrong. Here's what I can do differently next time. I want to make this right. I want to make our relationship right. I would like to take actions that show that I respect you, that, take, that, that, that move towards making the relationship whole rather than harming it. I want to consider what's going on in your life next time. Will you forgive me? Do you see how different that is from, I'm sorry you're upset, or I'm sorry I've upset you? You take ownership. You take ownership. You're sorry for the sin itself. You move from, I'm sorry I have to deal with you being upset now. Sorry for the consequences. You move from that to, I'm sorry for these wrongs within me. I hate them. And I haven't dealt with them as I should with you, with God, or with myself. Help me to do that. Help me to deal with them. Your attitude towards sin, yourself, and your, the sin in yourself and your sin uh, itself changes and makes repentance real. Changes and makes repentance real in your life. So your attitude towards yourself is not that you're a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you're sinful. That's how it changes. And your attitude towards sin is real sorrow for the sin itself, not just the consequences it caused. You begin to see it as ugly. You begin to disdain it. You begin to dislike it. Where are the areas in your life, in work, in friendships, in, in relationships that have gone sour? Where are those areas where you're not sorry for the sin itself? Ask God to transform your attitude towards yourself and towards your sin in those areas, in any of those areas. So not only do we see a sight of sin and a change of attitude towards yourself and towards your sin, but also you need to see your sin as grieving God. This brings us to our second point. Uh, David says in 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now real repentance involves real sorrow over sin and the way it has grieved God. It's not just sorrow for the sin itself, but it's sorrow for the fact that it grieves your relationship with the one who's loved you so. 
It grieves your relationship with him. False repentance, on the other hand, is sorrow over the consequences of sin and the way it has grieved you. Do you see the difference? The way that it has grieved you. Self-pity may appear to be repentance, but it's not. It's counterfeit repentance. You can be sorry for the, co- the effects. The, uh, we call them when we're raising our children the natural consequences of what you do wrong. Right? There are natural consequences. But you can be more sorry for them than you are the fact that the things that you're holding on to, the reasons you're sinning in the first place, are the things that are standing in the way of your relationship with the one who loves you. They're grieving God. Real repentance is sorrow for grieving him. So, for example, David was sorry that things didn't go away when Uriah had showed good character. Uriah came home from battling, and rather than going home and having intimate relationship with his wife physically, he laid outside with the servants of the king on, on bunks because he didn't want to dishonor the men who had, were laying their life right down right this moment, the moment that he was there. He wouldn't do it. He refused to do it. And his righteousness got in the way of David's plan. It got in the way of him trying to cover it up. He had sorrow over not getting the things he wanted in his sin. Also, it grieved God. In Psalm 51, we see that David no longer tried to cover up his sin. He says, you're right. I am the man. And he wrote this song so that we'd worship, so we'd know the aspects of repentance that we need to know. Sorrow that in your sin, what you want is the way, is in the way of wanting God. Sorrow that in your sin, what you want is in the way of your wanting God. And your adultery, God likened your relationship to him to a marriage relationship. Your adultery, your wanting something else more than you want him, is something that you're sorrowful for. Real repentance involves real sorrow over sin and the way it grieves him. Mourn for your sin in the way that it grieves God. When you do something wrong and it shows up in your life and there are natural consequences, is your heart broken because of the way it impacts your relationship with God? Is your heart broken over what you do? Be careful to look for sin along with the help of others. Wherever there are things that you want in life, that's another important context for it. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Ask him to show you more and more of his love for you as you do. So we see real repentance has the characteristics of seeing the sin. It has the characteristics of a change in attitude toward yourself and toward your sin. It has sorrow over sin and the way that it has grieved God. But also, confessing your sin is an authentic aspect of real repentance. Confessing your sin. Look at 4b. David writes, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Real repentance makes no excuses, shifts no blame, and takes full responsibility. It makes no excuses. David's saying to Nathan that that he sinned against God, and he was willing to be the one to die for sin. His own judgment, when Nathan told him the parable of the person who stole the one ewe lamb, who had become like the daughter to the shepherd, David's judgment was that man should die. And so when Nathan says, you're the man, he says, you're right. I've sinned against God. And through that, his people. And I'm broken. 
This is not, this is, this is a natural thing for us to do, which is why we need one another to help us out of it. You see it way back in the fall in Genesis 3. Listen to listen how the story unfolds there. And listen to how many words are in place of, I did it. Listen to how many words come before the words of Adam and Eve before they say, I did it. And there they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said... I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now listen. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. How many words was that before he actually said, I did it? And who was involved in blame shifting? And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Less words in front of the admission, but there's still words in front of it. The point of true repentance, real repentance involves owning up to your sin. You've got to own up to the fact that you want things more than you want God. And that you can't see them, and you need to be able to see them. And the fact that it touches every aspect of who you are. Verse 4. The Lord has proved right. He's justified by his words. He's blameless in his judgment. Ask the Lord to clarify your sin, to see yourself as more wretched than you ever dared believe. So not only sight of sin, change an attitude for yourself and for your sin. Sorrow over sin and the way it has grieved God. Owning up to your sin, but finally, turning from your sin. One of the authentic aspects of true repentance, of real repentance, is to turn from your sin. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Other translations have put that grant to me a willing spirit. If, the five, if those other elements are there that we talked about, then you're going to forsake your sin and its power over you is going to be weakened. And you at least make some progress out of it. And we've talked about this in the past. We've talked about the idea that temptation to sin, when it comes, comes in different levels. Right? So here's the difference between knowing your identity in Christ and, knowing, uh, and, and being tempted out of your identity with Christ. Right? So the sin comes, whatever it is for you, and you're tempted to do it. And you're tempted to engage in it. And you not entering into temptation, the temptation comes and you say, no. I am in Christ, and he died for me, and I'm made righteous by him, and I want to live rightly in relationship with God. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to put you in front of my face. I'm not even going to consider you. Done. I'm in Jesus, right? And the difference between that and entering in is very subtle. Sin comes, you go, huh. No, I'm this in Jesus. I, you know, and you, re- you recite everything just as you would have before. But notice there was a slight momentary identification with the thing in and of itself. It became attractive to you. The next layer down is where you begin to argue with the sin instead of against it. You begin to argue with it. You begin to give it a credible voice in your life to shape you. If I had, if you had me, the sin says, then 
then you'd be worth, life would be worth living. You'd be worth something, right? It's the equivalent of inviting someone who wants to murder you, who's knocking on your door, trying to pound in. You open the door, you invite them to sit down at your dining room table, and you say, let's talk about this. Why do you want to do it? What are the reasons? And you've given your sin validity of authority to speak into your life in only the way that God has. Only the way that God has. And then you give in to sin and you do it. And the next level down is arguing, is um, accusation. You're under accusation. Sin accuses you and says you call yourself faithful. You call yourself faithful after what you've done. And it brings into view your own record rather than Jesus' record on your behalf. And then beyond that, there's just spiraling down where you're doing it more and more and you can't see it anymore. And that's where you need the intervention of one another. You need it all along, but you need the intervention of one another. You need a willing spirit. Real repentance involves a willing spirit to turn from your sin and turn towards God. Look, we have a notion of freedom of will. And this has been a hot topic in the church for centuries. And maybe it's a hot topic for you. Freedom of will. But one of the beautiful illustrations of the truth that came out of the historical Christianity that we're connected to is this. You're bound by your will. You might think you're free, but you're bound by your will. And your will is bound by sin. Your will is bound by sin. Look, here's a simple illustration to help you think of it better. Um, In an ongoing way as you pray through this. Imagine a lion. Big lion. Male lion. Mane. Sitting there. And you put before it, in front of it, it's hungry. You put in front of it to eat a hot steaming bowl of porridge. And on the other side of that, you put a raw, fresh side of beef. The lion's free to eat either, but in its nature, it's bound to eat what it's in its nature to eat. So what's it going to choose? It's going to choose the meat. It can't, by its nature, choose the porridge. In the same way, in our sin, we can't, in our nature, in sinfulness, choose God. We can't even see it, to be honest. We need the intervention of the Holy Spirit to see it. You need God to grant you a willing spirit in order to turn from your sin and turn towards God. He requires that you're willing to turn from the things that you would hold dear and turn to him and hold him most dear. Wherever those things are that are most important to you, the things or the people that you're afraid to lose, those are the things that he wants to deal with you in authentic and real repentance. He wants you to pray pray along with David, restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Not only a willing spirit, but also God shows us a sacrifice that would deal with sin when we could not. And we'll close with this. God shows us a sacrifice that would deal with sin when we could not. David couldn't deal with sin. He knew that. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He knows that he can't do it. But God could deal with David's sin. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. How did God do it? 
How did God deal with David's sin? Well, by grace, by grace, friends, David knew that he could not fix his relationship with God through his own effort, verse 16. But he looked towards the sacrifice of God, the one who would have a broken spirit, the one who would have a broken and contrite heart, the one in whose sacrifice the Lord would delight in. The author of Hebrews writes about this one and explains that all of the Old Testament sacrifices merely pointed to him. Hebrews 10 reads this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And again in chapter 9, But as it is, he has appeared once and for all, Jesus, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, in Jesus, friends, God provides for us the sacrifice that we cannot. Turning to him is the only way all the other characteristics of real repentance that we've discussed will fall into place. If you think you're living a good life, what you're really thinking is that God owes you and the sacrifice provided by your good living trumps his sacrifice that's needed on your behalf. You believe that you can fix your relationship with God through your effort. Or if you've lived as you pleased and now you believe that you can't come to God because of who you are and what you've done and the way that you've lived, your way of living trumps his sacrifice because you believe, you believe that your relationship with God cannot be fixed because of your record, but it's still your record in, in place of Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice that we cannot make ourselves. Turn to him as the foundation for any of the other aspects of repentance that you would engage in in your life. Turn to him wherever there is sin in your life and you need to turn from it. David couldn't deal with his sin and neither can you, but God did. Ask him for the grace to see, to see you as he does in Jesus because if you come to him through Jesus' work on your behalf, he sees his righteous, record, his righteous record in your place. And you go to God, not because of your effort, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done on behalf. And that is the beginning of, and the foundation for any of the other repentance that we would do. You want to turn to God? You want to turn away from the things that would hold you down? Turn to the one who stood in your place, who loved you so much that he was able to stay and have his heart broken taking the wrath that you should have received on the cross so that you could receive the acclaim and the wonder of the Father at the great works that he's done. It's there for you. It's free. Will you go to him in that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now not in the works our own hands have done, not in that our sins are too great to keep your love from us, or that our works are so great that it demands your acclaim of us. But we, we lay down our record. We lay down our trying. We da- lay down the ways that we would try to come to you in what we do. And we would instead turn to you and your record on behalf of us, Lord Jesus. We come to you in the good name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And we come with hope and boldness, and grace, and peace, and humility that's required to believe these great things. Make it true of us more and more each day, we ask in Jesus.